0: Well, this is week number seven in our series called The Better Covenant, and that phrase is based on Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. We won't turn there for the sake of time tonight, Uh, but it says that we have a new and better covenant established upon better promises, and of course, all of that is through the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, as we've been saying every week, it's not that the old covenant was bad, it was good, but the new covenant is better. And it's better because it's uh, established based on what Jesus has done for us and not based on a lot of things, works that we have to do, thank God. So uh, that's what the better covenant is all about. So we've covered a whole lot of different things. We've talked about what a covenant is, how Old Testament uh, folks entered into covenant relationship. We talked uh, some about the Lord Jesus and what he has done for us and in, in providing this covenant and what I want to do tonight is I want to, we, we covered uh, the Old Testament sacrificial system and we talked about the priesthood last week. I want to talk about the Passover tonight. The Passover is a covenant relationship meal. It's all based on covenant. It's not just a tradition that the Jews picked up at some point. It's all based on the covenant. And of course, as we've been establishing All of this paints a picture towards the Lord Jesus Christ and what he was going to do for us at the cross. But if you want to turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus, the 12th chapter, Exodus, the 12th chapter, and we're going to read there, and we're going to read the instructions that the Lord gave to Moses. Now, the children of Israel, they're out in the wilderness at this point. They've been delivered from the the bondage of slavery in Egypt and so they're out in the wilderness. God is instructing them regarding um, the, some things, giving them some instructions. And so in Exodus chapter 12, in verse 1, it says this. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, this, land, this month, oh, excuse me, they haven't gone into the wilderness yet. They're still in Egypt. This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So this is uh, what is known in the Hebrew as the month of Abib. It it coordinates with the latter part of March and April on our calendar. In verse three, speak to all the congregation of Israel saying on the 10th of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house, take it according to the number of the persons According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Now, as I, as I say all the time, pay attention to the details because these instructions are very specific, but it's on purpose, okay? Okay. So uh, now, so verse six again, now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roast it in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you will eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover." For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. By the way, every time in the Old Testament, you see the word Lord and it's in all caps. What that means is uh, I am uh, Jehovah, the most high God. Uh, So it's, it's, it's a little more in depth, well, it's a lot more in depth than just Uh, Lord in our language. Okay. Verse 13. Now the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. All right, now let's break down some of these details that God gave them. And so God instructs every man to select for his household a lamb without spot or blemish on the 10th day of that first month. So uh, the month of Abib, they selected the lamb on the 10th day. What you did is you brought the lamb home, you put it in a pen and you observed it for five days to make sure that there's nothing wrong with it. So you started on the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, and 14th. On the 14th day of the month, the head of the household is to bring the lamb to the doorstep. And what you did then is you brought it to the doorstep and you, you killed it. You slit its throat. And uh, then you placed a basin underneath the doorstep to capture the blood that drained from the lamb's body. Okay, so then you take a hyssop bush and a hyssop bush was hollow. The the stems on it were hollow, so it would hold liquid. If you'll remember when Jesus was on the cross, they raised a sponge up to him on a hyssop branch because it would hold liquid. And so then the the father or the head of the household takes a hyssop bush, he dips it in the blood, sprinkles the blood on both sides of the doorpost, and then above the doorpost, there will be blood at the foot of the door and both sides of the door and at the top of the door. And so the entire entrance of the house will be covered by blood. So picture this with me, your front door of your house, and uh, so the... The lamb has been been killed. The blood has been drained out. There's blood at the doorstop on the bottom, and then the you would take the hyssop branch and you would sprinkle the blood on the left side, the right side, and the top of the door. And of course, uh, you know you 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 can figure out that that's uh, the shape of the cross. It's what the cross would look like. So this was to be done on the evening of the fourteenth. Now let me break down. A Hebrew day for you, what what the clock was for the Hebrew people. The new day began at 6 p.m. in the evening. Our new day begins at 12 p.m. or 12 a.m. in the evening. For the Hebrews, it was at 6 p.m. in the evening, so they had to kill the lambs around 3 o'clock in the afternoon and on the 14th day in order to consume the meal, and do everything that they needed to do to prepare by 6 p.m. So you can imagine when 3 p.m. arrives, Hebrew knives all across the land of Goshen, where the Hebrews lived in Egypt, all of those lambs are killed, and the blood is applied. The family then enters the household, closes the door, but they enter through the blood-stained doorway. Now, one thing I love about, if you ever go out to the Billy Graham Library and the main entrance there to the library is a doorway that's in the shape of a cross. And so you always enter into the library through the cross. of course, being symbolic of entering into your relationship with Jesus through the cross. Well, what's also painted here for us is that the family would enter the house through this image of the cross. And so if they stayed inside the house, they were safe inside because the blood would protect them. So inside the house, they roast the lamb and eat the parts that they that they were permitted to eat as they wait on this final plague to move throughout the land. So again, you know, Most historians and theologians believe that in the Exodus, there were probably 2 million Jews. And so you can imagine the thousands of households that were there. And all of these households would be doing this at the same time. So there would be heads of households all in the land of Goshen, slaughtering the lambs, capturing the blood, spreading the blood on the doorways, all at the same time. You know, and and I heard this illustration, and I thought it was very good to kind of help you imagine what it was like. You know, if you, uh, a population of 2 million people would be, say, the city of Charlotte. Can you imagine what it would be like if everybody in the city of Charlotte was Jewish and was preparing for the exit, uh, exiting slavery, and all 2 million people decided to go out in their backyard and grill out and grill steaks. You could smell the steaks and the smoke for miles around. I mean, it would just be absolutely huge, okay? So that gives you a picture as to what's going on. So as the scent of the smoke would rise up from these lambs being burned and cooked inside the home, Symbolically, of course, it reached the nostrils of God and it was the evidence to God that the blood representing the covenant relationship with Abraham's descendants had been applied. And then the covenant meal was consumed to celebrate the communion of that covenant. So there in chapter 12, drop down and look at at verse 46. It says, in one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside of the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. You know, one thing that's interesting about the crucifixion of the Lord and the 22nd Psalm also uh, prophesies about this, where uh, David said that not one of his bones would be broken. And that's absolutely the truth. None of Jesus' bones were broken during the crucifixion. Okay, so. Um, in exodus 12 46 again you shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house nor shall you break one of its bones so in preparing the meal not one bone of the lamb was to be broken and the whole lamb was to be consumed so the portions that were edible the family had to consume all of that and nothing could be left over until the next morning in other words so the, the meaty portions that the family would eat, uh, that would be consumed, and then the head and everything else that was left over had to be burned overnight. It had to be burned up before uh, the dawn of the next day. So along with the lamb, so the family is, is partaking of the lamb, the family also ate bitter herbs and unleavened bread. The bitter herbs were to remind them of their bitter times in bondage under Pharaoh. You know, this meal was not supposed to be a, uh, you know, all about enjoying the food per se. It was to make a memorial for them of what God at this time was getting ready to do in delivering them. And then, of course, every year afterwards when they were to receive the Passover meal, it was supposed to be a memorial for what God did for them. So they ate the bitter herbs, and then the unleavened bread would remind them that they were eating in a hurry. In other words, they, they, they threw the bread together, didn't have time to put in all the ingredients, the yeast and whatnot, so the bread did not rise. And uh, so they didn't have proper uh, time to prepare it. And so the, be- the bread remained flat. And so that's why uh, you know they, they ate the unleavened bread. The other thing that they were supposed to do was to eat the meal, even though it was in evening time, they ate the meal fully clothed, and with their the father had his staff in his hand, meaning they were preparing, they were doing everything they could to be ready to depart at a moment's notice. Now, what's cool about this, just a little side thought, I want you to think about something next time you're facing an impossible situation. God showed up. These people were facing an impossible situation. Pharaoh had dug his heels in and absolutely refused to let them go. It looked in the natural like they were never, ever going to be able to leave this bondage, to, to leave the lives that they had in bondage and slavery in Egypt. And God turned that situation around in less than 24 hours. So in in that short period of time, Pharaoh made the decision to let the people go. The people left and they were delivered and set free all in, in just within a short window of time. So I say that to just remind us that, you know, anytime we're facing an impossible situation, just know God can work in the, in your life and in that situation to turn it around, and if necessary, he can do it in less than 24 hours, okay? So, let's go back, and, and we're talking about the family. So, while the family was in the house, now imagine this with me, they're in the house, the blood is sprinkled on the doorpost and everything outside, So the family inside the house could not see the blood covering them, but they had faith that God would save them because they believed the blood was there. And just think about us. I've never seen the blood of Jesus. I've never, I wasn't privileged to be, you know, to witness what he did at the cross. And, uh, you know, the, the the cool thing about it is it's we receive what the blood of Jesus has done for us by faith, just like these people received what the blood of the lamb did for them by faith. So as they ate their meal, the death angel swept through the land. By the way, this was not an angel from heaven. There, there are no death angels in heaven. Okay. Uh, There is no death in heaven, by the way. So as the, the death angel swept through the land, as he passed from house to house and door to door, he sought to enter the house. If the entrance was covered by the blood, the death angel could not have access and had to pass over that house. And I would submit to all of us tonight that You know, Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But if we have faith in what the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, then that provides a barrier that can forbid him access into your life. The blood was a seal protecting the people inside. If the entrance was not covered by blood, judgment would come upon that house and the firstborn died. So think about this with me. So fast forward, uh, the night is over. The Hebrew people are walking out of Egypt. Each person, each one of those Hebrew people that walked out of Egypt that day had lamb on the inside of them. Okay, meaning every individual family member had feasted on, on the lamb and he was in each of them. Well, guess what? If you're born again today, you have the lamb on the inside of you. You can walk out of bondage. You can walk out of whatever the enemy has tried to keep you in. You can walk out free because you have the lamb on the inside of you. So when the Hebrews offered up the blood of the lamb to God, they believed they were symbolically, as we talked about in the sacrificial system, they were symbolically offering their own life to God they knew the life of the flesh was in the blood. You remember Leviticus 17, 11 we talked about. So in this time of deliverance, the blood sprinkled doorpost became their altar and the lamb took their place. Now I want to fast forward. And of course they were instructed to maintain this reminder, this memorial for the entire 40 years that they wandered in the, the wilderness. So Every year, they were supposed to uh, partake in the Passover meal as a celebration and a reminder of what God had done for him for them. So, once they were in the Promised Land, uh, it changed just a little bit because they're no longer living in tents; they're living in permanent homes and dwellings now. At this point, so this was a uh, again an ordinance that was to be kept year after year from generation to generation. To constantly remind them of their deliverance from the bondage of Egypt, so let's talk about some things that they did to adapt for living in the Promised Land. Okay, so let's say it was uh, approaching time to receive Passover and celebrate Passover. So here's what would happen. So again, we're we're forty plus years into this, and we're in the Promised Land now. So before the Passover could begin, all leaven had to be removed from the Hebrews' house. Now, if you'll remember, Jesus talked about leaven in his ministry. You know, he warned the disciples. He said, don't let the leaven of the Pharisees affect you. Meaning, uh, you know, and I've never really baked bread, but for those of you who have baked bread, you know, a little leaven uh, will leaven the whole lump, Jesus said. So leaven is always representative of the world and and the, the old life that we used to live before Christ. And so before the Passover could begin, all leaven had to be removed from the Hebrews' house. The leaven represented their old life in Egypt, and the house had to be purged of the leaven because there could be no leaven present as they communed with God. So the head of the house would take a, a candle or a lantern, you know, an oil lamp, and would diligently search through every nook and cranny of the house looking for leaven. You know, in the kitchen area of the house, you know, leaven could have flown in onto the floor with, with flour or whatever. And so if they found any leaven, it had to be removed from the house immediately. Now, in modern day, what, what Jews do that practice this, the Orthodox Jews, what they do is uh, someone in the household will, will symbolically spread bread clump crumbs around the house. The head of the household will then take a candle and search the house for the, the leaven. And when he finds it, he doesn't touch it, but the, the Jews have a little feather duster and a brush and, it, and it, he brushes it into this thing that looks like a wooden spoon. And once all the leaven is found, he puts the spoon, the feather brush, and the candle in a cloth bound by string, and then they burn it, showing that they've gotten rid of all the leaven and their household is purged from, from this leaven. Okay, so once that's done, then the family sits down, well, not sits down, they recline, at the table, now, if they're Orthodox, they do. I know modern Jews sometimes that are celebrating Passover will sit at a table, okay? Now, um, the head of the household. Now, this is something very important. And, and I think we in modern day could learn a lesson for this. The head of the household is responsible every year for explaining the meaning of the Passover to the entire family and especially the children. You know, you got to keep in mind that they didn't have a Bible like we have. Now, there were scrolls that were available, but they were kept at the synagogue. If you wanted to read from the scrolls, you had to go to the synagogue in your town and request the scroll. The, the, the rabbi would bring the scroll to you so you could read it, but they didn't have Bibles in their household. So, as things that were taught were taught verbally to the children in great detail. And uh, this was an instruction that that the Lord gave to the children of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. And he said, teach these things while you're in your house, while you're, you're walking, you know, just all the time, impart these things to your children. And, you know, as I was um, doing my Bible reading recently, you know, I thought about, you know, in, if you're familiar with the history of the kings of his, of Judah, Hezekiah was a very very good king. He loved God. He did his very very best to obey God and to uh, get rid of all of the idols that were in Judah at the time, and to purge the land of these things and to bring the people back to their relationship with God. But what's interesting to me is, and it, and again, if you're reading through this. Pay attention to uh, how the generations work. The very next king of Judah, who was Hezekiah's son, was a man by the name of Manasseh. And the Bible says that Manasseh did not do what God uh, told them to do. He did not follow the things of God. As a matter of fact, he picked up on and practiced the... the uh, very, very bad things that Ahab and Jezebel were doing in uh, Israel, in the northern kingdom, and, and which brought and introduced all of that idolatry back into the land of Judah. So the question goes, what happened? Here you have one king, Hezekiah, who's a good king following after the Lord and doing what God wants him to do, but his very own son turns out to be a heathen, an evil man. You know, and, and I mean, this guy was really bad. He murdered all of his opposition. I mean, he did all kinds of stuff. So, what happened? Where was the breakdown? Well, the breakdown obviously was this Hezekiah failed to teach Manasseh what he needed to impart to him in order for him to continue in his relationship with God. There was a breakdown and there was a failure somewhere along those lines. Now, I know children can have their own minds, they have their own wills, and they can choose to do whatever. But for this for this young man to go so diametrically opposed to the life that his father lived and the legacy that his father had, uh, there was definitely a breakdown somewhere. So I say all that to say it's very important that in our lives as believers that we're very intentional in imparting to the next generation, how they are to live, how they're to walk by faith, how they're to believe the word of God, how to uh, you know worship, how to do all of the things that we know to do. And it shouldn't be where the next generation loses out or misses out because they don't know how to walk with God like we have had the privilege of learning, okay? So I just wanted to say that. So as the family is gathered around, uh, for those of you who have the notes and and are following along, uh, jump over to page six. And uh, as the father is instructing the the children on these things, the children were taught to ask five questions, and this happened every year. So the children were taught, and I'll tell you what the questions were. Okay, and then give you what the answer was supposed to be. The question was presented: Why is it that on all other nights during the year? we eat either leavened bread or matzah, which is unleavened bread, but on this night, we only eat matzah. And so the reply from the father would be, we only eat matzah because our ancestors could not wait for their breads to rise when they were fleeing slavery in Egypt, so they were flat and when they came out of the oven. The next question the child would ask is, why is it that on all other nights, we eat all kinds of vegetables, but on this night, We eat bitter herbs. The father would reply, We eat only marer, a bitter herb, to remind us of the bitterness of slavery that our ancestors endured while in Egypt. The third question that the child would ask is, Why is it that on all other nights we do not dip our food even once, but on this night we dip our food twice? And the father would reply, The first dip, the green vegetables in salt water, symbolizes the replacing of our tears with gratitude. And the second dip, mara in kerosis, symbolizes the sweetening of our burden of bitterness and suffering. In other words, we're symbolizing how God has brought us out of that horrible life that we had to live. And you know what's interesting to me? You know, think about this for just a second, guys. How how often did the children of Israel complain to Moses and say, it would have been better off if we'd have stayed in Egypt? Why'd you bring us out here to die? How, how short-term their memory was as to how horrible their lives were in Egypt. The fifth question that the child would ask is it why is it that on all other nights we eat meat either roasted, marinated, or cooked, but on this night it is entirely roasted? And the father would reply, we eat only roasted meat because that is how the Passover lamb is prepared during sacrifice in the temple at Jerusalem. So this was a little tradition that would happen in the house. Now, on the table, oh, and by the way, uh, I skipped one of the questions. Number four, why is it that on all other nights we dine either sitting upright or reclining but on this night, we all recline, okay? And listen, as I said to you last week or the week before, forget the picture of the Last Supper that we've seen. That is not how they received the Passover meal. Now, as I said, modern Jews will sit around a table, but in Jesus' day and in the days preceding that, they reclined on the floor around a very low table that was just several inches off of the the floor, okay, so they were all reclining on pillows. So the child would ask, you know, why are we reclining tonight instead of sitting upright like we do other nights? And so the father would reply, we recline at the table because in ancient times, a person who reclined at a meal was a free person while slaves and servants stood, okay? So it was a it was an indication that we are free. And so we are able to recline at this table. okay? Now, on the table, there were five cups of wine, five cups of wine. And as you progress through the Passover meal, you partake, the family would receive and partake from from this one cup. So uh, number one, The first cup that they would uh, participate or or partake from is called the cup of sanctification. This head of the household would hold this cup up. He would bless it. And then everybody in the family would receive from this cup. And this symbolizes the Lord saying, I will bring you out. Then they would receive the bitter herbs that I mentioned to you earlier dipped in salt water And this reminded them of their bitter suffering and tears in Egypt. Then they would go to cup number two, which was the cup of the plagues. And then the telling of the story of the plagues in Egypt, the father would would tell that story again. And this cup represented, I will deliver you. Then they would go to the bread. So we've, we've received first cup, the bitter herbs, and then the second cup, and then we would go to the bread. Now, at this point where the, the Jews are, uh, I want you to imagine a, a little bag about this big um, that was embroidered with gold thread. The pictures that I have seen of them, they're burgundy in color. They're embroidered with gold thread, and uh, they have three compartments in them, and the the Household, the head of the household would put three pieces of unleavened bread in this pouch one on the left, one in the middle, and one on the right. Okay. So during the meal, the head of the household would take out the middle piece of bread. He would break it and pass it around the table, and each member would then break off a piece and eat it. They believed that this centerpiece symbolized Isaac who was sacrificed, but wasn't sacrificed. You remember that story where Abraham, God uh, asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son. And so when he got to Mount Moriah and was getting ready to do it, the angel stopped him, okay? And so they they said that the centerpiece was Isaac, who was sacrificed, although they never fully understood because he was never sacrificed. They knew that but they just knew the tradition said, we eat the centerpiece and this represents Isaac. Keep that in your your memory, okay? So then you take the third cup of wine and this was the cup of redemption, meaning that the father would again lift this cup, would bless it and, and offer thanks for it. And this cup represented God stepping into our lives to redeem us. And then he would go to cup number four which was the cup of praise, meaning this is celebratory. We're, we're ready to celebrate this thing, okay? And I'm ready to receive what God has done. So we're celebrating this. He would lift it up, bless it, and each of the family would receive from this cup, okay? Now, when God, just a little side note, when God made his covenant with Abraham, he made three promises, Okay. You don't need to remember this. And by the way, if you've missed any of this, download the notes, okay, from the website. So God promised Abraham he would have many descendants. He promised Abraham that his many descendants would possess the land. And he promised that there was a seed of Abraham that was coming who would be a blessing to the whole world. Okay. So again, the promise to Abraham was many descendants. Number two, descendants would his descendants would possess the land, and number three, that there was a seed of Abraham who was coming, who would be a blessing to the whole world. All right. Now, I, I told you that there were five cups, so we've partaken of four up to this point. So this fifth cup was called the cup of blessing, the cup of blessing. Okay. This coming, this cup was to show the one that was coming. It was set out for the Messiah. Okay. So the coming one would not only be their king, but somehow in a way, and of course they didn't fully understand this, that he would be God living among them. He would become Emmanuel. You know, we hear that that phrase at Christmas time all the time. But, but he would become Emmanuel, and he would be their God, and they would be his people. So after they possessed the land, they began to look for the fulfillment of that last promise. So all three of those promises that Abraham was told, or, or excuse me, the first two had been fulfilled, that there were many descendants and that they possessed the land. So they were looking for this third one to come to pass they very much anticipated his coming. And so what they would do is they would place a cup at the end of the table called the cup of blessing. And according to tradition, when the Messiah would come, he would drink of the cup and cut a new covenant with his people. So they left a place at the table with this cup looking forward to this time. And so then the family, would recite the following prayer, and and I'm just going to quote it as they would say it. How long, O Lord, how long will your anger not be turned away from your people, Israel? And will you have mercy and restore us again to your favor? Behold our sufferings. We are scattered among the heathen, and they mock us, saying, Where is your God? Where is the promise of his coming? We grow faint, yet we hope. Okay, so this was a prayer that they would pray. For uh, the coming Messiah, looking for the Messiah. Okay. Now, let's fast forward a little bit. So, Solomon has constructed his temple. By the way, uh, just a little history. There were two temples that were constructed in Jerusalem. You had the Tabernacle of Moses, which actually was kept at Shiloh for a while. Then the Ark was brought to Jerusalem for David's Tabernacle. And then Solomon, David's son, constructed the first temple, which uh, uh, was was absolutely glorious. But unfortunately, when Nebuchadnezzar came in and took the children of Israel captive and took them away to Babylon, he destroyed that temple. Now, uh, just somebody might say, well, how could he destroy it? It looks like it was made of stone. Well, the stone was there, but... Uh, All on the inside of that temple were cedar panels that were covered in in pure gold. So if you can imagine paneling all the way around that was covered in gold. So what Nebuchadnezzar's men did is they lit the wood on fire and let the gold drain off of the, the wood as it was burning And they captured the gold in order to take that back to Babylon. And of course, they took all the utensils with them and everything. The second temple that was constructed was the temple that Herod built just prior to Jesus coming on the scene. And it was even bigger and more glorious than Solomon's temple uh, because Herod had a real ego complex. You know, this is the same Herod that ordered all the babies two years old and younger in Bethlehem to be killed because he heard there was another king of the Jews that had shown up. And uh, so Herod's temple is the one that Jesus went to. Herod's temple is the one that Jesus ministered in. And if you've ever seen pictures or video of the Jews at the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall in Jerusalem, that is the one remaining wall from Herod's temple that is left standing. Everything else was destroyed by the Romans in uh, 70 AD during uh, there was a huge uh, civil war, if you will, where the, the, the Jews fought against the Romans and that temple was destroyed. Okay, so let's back up. I just wanted you to kind of have that clarification. So Solomon's temple was built. And so instead of killing the lambs at your doorpost and your, you know, at your home. You carried the lamb to the temple, and it became part of that sacrificial system that we talked about on the Day of Atonement and uh, the Passover. So uh, every household would bring their lamb to the temple. So when the Hebrew came to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, he would either bring a lamb or could buy a lamb that was already set aside for sacrifice It was a lamb that had been closely inspected without spot or blemish, and it was a lamb that found no fault because it was born to die as a Passover lamb, okay? Now, let's fast forward to Jesus' day, all right? So Jesus, in the latter part of his ministry, the last week of his life before he was crucified was the Passover week. Now, think back with me on the 10th day of Abib is when the lambs were gathered for each household and they were observed for five days. Okay, you remember that? Mm -hmm. So you, um, I'm trying not to get ahead of myself. (laughs) Go over with me to John chapter one, please. The gospel of John. For those of you who are following on the notes, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, but just follow along the best you can. John 1, verse 26. John the Baptist makes a declaration over Jesus. In verse 26 of John, chapter 1, John answered and said, I baptize you with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, that phrase right there is getting ready to take on a little deeper meaning to us. John wasn't calling Jesus the Lamb of God, the Lamb that was going to take away the sin of the world because he was trying to be cute. There was a reason that the Holy Spirit moved on him to make this declaration in public before everybody else, uh, and they could hear it, okay? So go over with me to John, the 12th chapter, please. John 12, verse 12. So the last week of Jesus' life, Jesus is, he and his disciples are spending the night in a suburb of Jerusalem called Bethany. And every day they were coming in. So the first day that Jesus comes in, in John 12, verse 12, it says, the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast. So there was a huge number of people that were in Jerusalem preparing for the Passover. So when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, in other words, after his resurrection, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Okay, so let's, let's talk about what's going on at Jerusalem at this time. So you arrive into Jerusalem, you see the great temple up on the Temple Mount. Uh, there's a lot of buzz and activity. I mean, just, you know, scores of people had come into Jerusalem from out of town in order to celebrate the Passover and to bring their sacrificial lamb. And so, uh, you know, Josephus, the Jewish historian, recorded that there would be a minimum of 265,000 lambs that would be sacrificed on this Passover day. So a quarter of a million lambs would be offered for all of the households that were represented there, okay? So Jesus on the 10th day of Abib comes riding in on a donkey into Jerusalem, and then all we have is that every day from that point forward, he would go into Jerusalem, he would go to the temple, he would examine everything that was going on in the temple, and then at night, they would go back out to Bethany. The next morning, he would come back into Jerusalem, and he did this for five days. So this started on the 10th of Abib, and it went to the 14th of Abib. So what was Jesus doing on these five days? He, and, and by the way, he would go straight to the temple. He didn't go, you know, meandering around in the city. What was he doing? He was giving the religious leaders an opportunity to examine him to find out that he was indeed qualified to be the lamb, that he was spotless, that he was without blemish, and he was perfect in every way, and he was fulfilling that examination process. So for five days, uh, they you know they examined him, they found no fault on him, and then therefore he was able and qualified to be able to die as the Passover lamb. Now, what we know as the last supper took place on the evening of the 14th. So this would be the day when in preparation for the Passover. Okay. So the room is prepared and Jesus and his disciples uh, received the Passover meal. Now, um, Go over with me to Luke, the 22nd chapter, please. Hallelujah. See, I'm, I'm excited because I know what I'm getting ready to tell you. Amen. Luke 22, verse 13. So the disciples go up and prepare the room, verse 13. So they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, the the disciples had no idea what he was getting ready to do. He Mm -hmm. had told them time and time again that they were going to Jerusalem. He was going to be arrested. He would be beaten. He would be crucified. But on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. But it just didn't register with them. And so uh, then verse 17, um, it says, then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So he had taken the cup of redemption. They had partaken of it. Now, verse 19, it says this, and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them. Now stop. He has that little bag that I was telling you about that has the three compartments in it. You Remember the Mm -hmm. middle one stood for Isaac. When he did this, he took the bag and took the bread out of that center pouch and broke it and gave it to them and said this, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay. So They were mesmerized by this because they watched him. They had never seen anybody in all of their lives reach in there and take that centerpiece of bread and declare that this is representative of me. They always, you know, were taught that it was representative of Isaac and all this kind of thing. But Jesus purposefully took that piece of bread out, broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, This is my body which is broken for you. Now, verse 20, we read over this so quickly and and miss it, okay? Just simply because we don't know, but you do know tonight. Look at what it says in verse 20. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, which, it says he took the cup. It doesn't say he took a cup. That's the way we've always read it. Like he just grabbed a cup, any old cup. Jesus reached across the table and took the cup that belonged to the Messiah and grabbed Mm -hmm. it and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And he drank of it and then passed it all around to them and they drank of it. Okay, so he was setting in motion this covenant. Now, I want to just remind you of what's going on now as Jesus uh, is arrested. After they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, he's arrested. He's taken to the high priest's home. He's, uh, you know, beaten and and mocked and then turned over to the Romans, okay? At the time, the same exact time that Jesus was hanging on the cross, the Bible says that he hung from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. This would have been from around noon until 3 p.m. The Bible says at around 3 p.m., he cried out and he said, Eli, Eli, Eli. Uh, you know, and and sabachthani, which means, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the Bible says he breathed his last and gave up the ghost and he died. Inside the city, Jesus is hanging on the cross outside the city at Calvary. Inside the city, 265,000 lambs are all dying at the same time in the temple. So there was all of this activity going on while the true lamb of God was bleeding and dying and pouring out his blood for each of us and for all of humanity. So at 3 p.m. on on that day, all of those lambs are killed for the next couple of hours at the same time that Jesus was dying on the cross. And then of Mm -hmm. course, at around 3 p.m., he he breathed his last, and then died. Okay, so um, you ever wondered why? Uh, you know, they inside the city, the people began to sing praises to God because the lambs were slaughtered. As the shouts of hallelujah and praise the Lord ring out from within the city on Calvary, Jesus was dying. And just like the doorpost back in Egypt, the blood of the lamb covered the cross, okay? And as we mentioned earlier, not one of his bones were broken, just as in the instructions. So the, as the, the lamb, the entire lamb was con- consumed in the fires on the altar, uh, Jesus was being consumed by the wrath and the judgment of God that was being poured out on him which should have been poured out on us. The mm-hmm. Jews, not knowingly, not knowing that they were fulfilling another prophecy, hurriedly took down his body before 6 p.m. that evening. Why? Because that, that marked the end of that day. They could not leave him on the cross past that. Why? Because if you'll remember, the instructions to the Hebrews were, leave nothing till <laughs> the next day. The hyssop bush carries water through its stem. When the blood was applied, water and blood would flow together. And as the father would would sprinkle the blood on the household, blood and water would come out of that hyssop branch. If you'll remember, when Jesus was pierced in his side, the Bible says blood and water came out of that wound. Hey, Brad. Yes. Quick question. Um, Don't you think the darkness that fell upon them during that time, would have kind of squelched the singing going on in the city, <laughs> because uh, there was darkness. Fell right. Yeah, yeah, it was dark for those three hours. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that would have an effect on it or not. Oh my goodness. Yeah, but here's something that was cool. When the when Herod's temple was built, there was a a drainage system that was put into it, and that when the sacrifices were being altered or, or offered rather, on the altars that the blood would drain down this drainage system and get mixed with water and would fall into basins that the priest would gather up. And if you were curious as to whether your sacrifice was acceptable, you could watch the blood and the water flow down and know that your sacrifice had been accepted. So just as in the days of old, Passover was a time of celebration. This, of course, is laying the precedent for our communion meal that we receive. And and communion was never designed to be a funeral, okay? And I'm talking Mm -hmm. about our church communion. Communion was never designed to be a, a, a funeral service. It was designed to be a celebration because it was a celebration of the lamb that was offered for us. He poured out his blood for us. He redeemed us. He's delivered us and he has set us free. And so we, we should be examining ourselves, but at the same time, celebrating what Jesus has done. So just as the lamb had to be consumed and the remains burned, Jesus' body could not remain on the cross. They had to take his body down. And that's why they were in such a hurry to find a tomb and to place his body there. All right. Now, I think Judy asked uh, last week or the week before, when did the sacrificial system stop? Well, I wanted to answer that question tonight, and it basically uh, ended, it, it stopped for a moment before Solomon's temple was built, Solomon's temple was constructed, and they started the sacrificial system again. Then when Nebuchadnezzar came and tore down Solomon's temple, it stopped temporarily, but then when the temple was reconstructed, and then ultimately Herod's temple was built, uh, the, the sacrificial system continued on until 70 AD, when the Jews rebelled against the Romans and the Romans destroyed it all. All right? And so no sacrifices have been offered since 70 AD, okay? in the first century after Jesus was raised from the dead. All right? So can you see the beauty of the Passover? and what all it represents, and everything that it prepared for the Lord Jesus. I'm telling you, God does nothing at random. He does nothing accidental. Everything is on purpose and everything is by design. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church Podcast. We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.